You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so delighted that we get to spend the next hour together on a journey around the arts. have a packed show this week so I'm going to forego my usual arts thought for the day so that we can head straight out on our tour. We have four arts experiences lined up for today, some classical music chat with the Odyssey Chamber music series, a new art exhibit at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery, a look at the film world courtesy of Ragtag Cinema and some treading of the boards at Arrow Rock's Lyceum Theatre. So... Are you sitting comfortably? Then here we go. Classical music may not be for everyone, and I would to some degree include myself in that category. However, I have on several occasions over the past few years gone to an Odyssey Chamber Music Series concert, and I have left feeling edified and enlightened. And that is largely thanks to my guest this morning, Odyssey Chamber Music Series Artistic Director, since 2004, music teacher and award-winning pianist Ayako Suruta. Good morning, Ayako, and welcome back to the show. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. Can you believe it has been over a year since we last chatted? I looked it up and it was September 2019. And we were talking about the evolution of the African-American spiritual with Dr. Jolie Rock. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Feels like half a century ago, doesn't it? It really does. And who would have ever thought that we would be talking about this in this particular situation. (laughs) I mean, we should have been done with the third evolution installment and celebrating it. But unfortunately, due to pandemic, we had to postpone that show. And we had um, completely gutted the original programming. And we did have our first premiere season concert back in October 9th, but it was totally different programming. We'll get to the programming that you have for the season in a little while. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about classical music generally, and why you think it is such a hard sell to contemporary audiences, and especially to young people. I think it's a little bit related to the world that we live in right now which is that I think there's lack of understanding and and therefore lack of interest. And I think once you understand that, oh, classical music is actually no different from any other pop music, because if you think about the genesis of classical music, it used to be considered a pop music in their contemporary (laughs) days. So from that perspective, I don't consider it to be that much different. It's just that, you know, there's just more different genres after many decades later. And once you understand the musical language, it's very easy to relate to. And I mean, can you not say the same thing about cultural differences that we're, you know, dealt with in our present day society? And I think it's about filling the gaps and understanding each other. How old were you when you fell in love with classical music? And what what was the selling point for you? 
Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I was born in Japan, and this is post-war, or at least my parents were born post-war. And it's important to understand that the Western classical music was considered to be the future for Japan. And my parents grew up looking at those rich families with pianos, dreaming that one of these days their children would actually also learn music, you know, because this is this was their dream. And so when I was born, it was decided that I would start piano, just like any other neighborhood kids. They all did music. And I think I was age five when I took interest in piano. And it was not because I was interested in the piano. Rather, my best friend back then, <laughs> I remember her name was Atsuko. Uh, we don't keep in touch anymore, but I, I do remember this because I was, I just wanted to spend more time with her. And I learned that she goes to Yamaha school. So that's what I started. And I begged my, my parents. And then, my, of course, my mom, she did some studies and she found that Suzuki method was probably more recommended. And so I switched from Yamaha to Suzuki. And I don't remember what that transfer was like, but I just remember that I was no longer in my best friend's class anymore. But the piano became a little bit more interesting in my second year. And that did not bother me too much. And I think it was three years later that I moved to over here into the States. So, And then you carried on. Yeah. You know, it is interesting to me that most of the canon that we hear in the classical world, of course, is almost exclusively created by white European men. But there is such an abundance of composers from uh, classical composers from other cultures. So certainly Japan has a huge number of classical composers in kind of a mixture of the Western tradition and Japanese folk and classical tradition there too. And of course, then, as we've been talking about a lot this summer, is how um, how white the arts are generally and how we need to have much more diversity of voices. Yes. Not only in terms of the people that are playing the music, but also in terms of the music that is being played because there is such a huge abundance of black composers, both in the European tradition and latterly in the United States. So you have, you know, people like Chevalier de Saint-Georges from the Caribbean and France, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Florence Price, Ignatius Sancho, William Grant Still, and then all the modern composers like Fred Onoverosuoki and Nikiru Okoye and Jesse Montgomery. There are so many, so many people that we could be playing. So I'm curious, how is Odyssey Chamber Music Series responding to that call for diversity? You said you'd torn up the program. So right. how are you changing? So I think everybody should know that the season 17 program originally did not look anything like this uh, that we have published this season. Because what happens is that the grant deadlines are due back in January, February, and March. And so the programming is actually planned a year in advance. So none of the pandemic, none of the Black Lives Matter actually really was the forefront to our society until, well, I think it's fair to say around springtime. And even though the topic itself was boiling to this point, And so I just stayed with the original programming until all of this movement hit. And then the grant basically asked me to confirm the year. And I told, I told myself, I can't 
in all good conscience, proceed with the original programming. Because I was looking at the program, and you're right, they were filled with all dead white composers, <laughs> as we call them. <laughs> and, um, and it's not that it was done intentionally. But if you think about all the schooling that we have, the systemic racism is, in fact, it's very true. Because all the composers that we study, I can maybe perhaps count on one hand the other types of composers, as in more culturally infused composers, who's not European or who's not white male. And so I got at the program mostly because I feel it was necessary to replace the evolution, which I definitely wanted to make sure that we were able to present the evolution in front of the public audience, which we are not able to do this season. In place of that, we had a kind of related theme going on with the ragtime. So we had the rag rhapsody, and that was our October programming that actually featured Scott Joplin uh, tunes and also Belize-born British composer Erilyn Wallen. And her music was way, way, way out there. And I've never played anything like bossa nova or jazz, but it was actually another opportunity for us to learn that particular new language. And the manuscript is handwritten. <laughs> it was a little bit daunting to learn the whole, <laughs> you know, whole, whole 10 minutes of it, but it was actually a lot of fun. And so I also made sure that in, I would say in almost every concert, we would have underrepresented composers or unfamiliar composers that we've never featured before. And in that way, I'm hoping to incorporate more diverse composers into the programs. And I also think that evolution is great. It needs to continue. But I also think integration is really the key to continuing the diverse programming. And it's not just a one-time, you know, and I think it's important to feature that uh, one-time all-Black composers with prominent Black musicians, I think I think that's really wonderful. It's a great way to feature um, multi-talents of our generation. But I think in the long run, they're asking us to integrate them into the society as equals. So if we don't do that, then it's going to go away. So in a long-term sense, I think that's our goal to have equal, more balanced programming gradually. And I do think everything takes time. I'm, I'm not a believer in jumping <laughs> and going ahead with all the changes. And as much as I would love to do that, I just know that that has its own repercussions. And so with that in mind, we need to actually work with the board. So we are actually reaching out to using this pandemic actually as an opportunity more than anything. We're reaching out virtually to these key note speakers whose uh, specialty is in diversity and working with the board to make sure that we also understand as an organization what it is to be truly diverse. Well, you have two concerts coming up before the end of the year, and I'm excited to see that you feature another underrepresented population in the world of classical music, and that is female composers. So you have one on November the 6th called Love and Friendship, and that features the work by composer Clara Schumann, and another one called Holiday Sparkles on December the 4th, when you have a Polish violinist and composer called Gratzina 
Batsevitz, who I don't know at all. So tell us <laughs> why you chose these two women for those two upcoming concerts. We initially had women's composers concerts planned last spring, which unfortunately, of course, got postponed or actually this one got canceled altogether because we did not know at the time we, whether we could reschedule it or not. And our solution was to spread that particular program out through the season and not all of them, but have a few of those female composers integrated into the programs this season for the same reasons that I just mentioned earlier, that in order to be truly diverse, the integration is really the key. So in November, we feature, the title is Love and Friendship, first of all. It's because we have Robert and Clara Schumann, a husband and wife team, and they have a very famous friendship with Johannes Brahms, who is another prominent uh, European composer of the time. Dead white man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, personally, I love Johannes Brahms. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, um, their story is a, quite an inspirational one because Clara Schumann was really the superstar of her day. She was, I could probably say that she was really the equal breadwinner for the household if she had been given the chance. But of course, being the female that she was, she was not given the equal opportunity to perform around the globe, like maybe perhaps Chopin and Franz Liszt did in their days. So Clara Schumann was a first-class pianist and also a composer. And she lost her husband in 1856. And Robert Schumann, before his death, had met Johannes Brahms, who was a protege wanting to study with them. And the Schumanns, as a family, took him in. And Johannes Brahms, he looked after his their kids and uh, studied composition with Robert for a short while. But the friendship between Clara and Johannes endured. And quote unquote, the rumor has it <laughs> that the friendship was probably more than that. To all evidences point to no physical of any sorts, but that they had such deep mutual respect and admiration for each other. And I think that really transcended their times, their lives. And that's what was so inspiring. And that still inspires us musicians too about their story. So the program includes Robert Schumann's two piano work and the Johannes Brahms very famous violin sonata number three that would be performed by Amy Appold and Natalia Bolshakova. And the Clara Schumann trio will conclude the program. And this will be performed by Julie Rosenfeld on violin, Amy Laura on cello, and Peter Miyamoto on piano. The Polish composer, Bajewicz, She's a composer introduced to me by Alison Robach, who is the oboist. And Alison actually has a quite a number of female and also underrepresented composers that I was really interested in. And this was one of the pieces that really captured my attention. And I thought that it would bring a really nice kind of texture to the otherwise a very holiday program. And actually, I had to change the program a little bit from the original planning because there was a group that had to unfortunately withdraw. So I'm working uh, right now with uh, Maria Dohova Trevor to have a harp and her husband come on to the program. And that will be announced probably later in the week. Are these shows that we can physically come and see or only see virtually? Unfortunately, for the time being, the First Baptist Church, which we are so grateful for sponsoring our series again this season, 
it's not open to the public. And so what that means is that November 6th will definitely be virtual only. And we can be seen and found on Facebook Live and also YouTube Live, in addition to the videos that will follow later in the season. And for the December concert, we'll see what the situation is like. But I think it's safe to assume that this season, that we are all virtual unless we notify our audiences otherwise. Okay, well, that's two fun things that you have coming up. Thank you so much, Ayako, for taking time to chat. Time always flies by when I am with you and there are lots of other things. <laughs> we you. could just sit and talk for an hour, but you can find out more about Odyssey Chamber Music Series and make a donation or buy tickets for their virtual events on their website. And that's odysseymissouri.org. Uh, actually, it's free. Oh, yes. No tickets. Okay, so you can just make a donation, but you don't have to buy a ticket for the virtual events. Even better. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Ayako. Always a joy chatting to you. Thank you, Diana. We tell the story of our lives through art. And when we look back through history, we see the same stories being told, each time with different facets of the same truth brought to the fore. A new exhibit at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery called Collective Voices is a compelling blend of both art and history, revealing the persistent narratives that permeate the University of Missouri's various collections. And two of its curators are here today to tell us more about this new exhibit. The Bingham Gallery's director, Catherine Armbrust, and the curator of the university's special collections, John Fifield Perez. Hello and welcome, Catherine and John. Hi there. Thank you for having us. Yes. You are welcome. There is so much to cover in this show that even if we chatted for an hour, we probably would be only scratching the surface. So let's see what we can achieve in around 12 minutes. (laughs) The new exhibit contains work from three campus collections, the Missouri Historic Costume and Textile Collection, Special Collections and the University Archives. Catherine, 2020 has been a year of chaos, activism and fear. To what extent is this show a response to the year? (laughs) Well, funny you should ask, because this (laughs) uh, show emerged as like the third iteration of my gallery schedule, because of the pandemic, shows kept getting canceled. And so I reached out to John and our other curator, Nicole Johnson, from the Textile Collection, and we started talking about the things that were in both of their collections that seemed like they could resonate easily as a response to kind of what's going on in our present moment in time. Besides the two of you, as you just mentioned, there is a third co-curator, Nicole Johnston, who oversees the Missouri Historic Costume and Textile Collection. Plus, you also worked with Anselm Hulsbergen and Gary Cox at the University Archives. So, John, with such a huge array of objects across the three campus collections, how did you all make your choices and pare it down to the 49 works that are in the show? (laughs) I think initially... The thought was all three of us are part of the material culture sort of cohort at the university where we all work with historical objects. And there there are obvious reasons why we sort of have gravitated towards our individual fields. And so I think that a lot of it was looking at what was resonating for us presently, things that we had in the collection that we really wanted to be able to share, uh, and trying to sort of, we started with a a massive number of items and then gradually winnowing that down 
to to items that really spoke to each other and and brought in this this sort of collective voice. How many did you start with altogether to pare it down to forty nine? Oh goodness! Did I don't think we had a I don't think we had a tally, Catherine. Did we? No, but it was a lot because we also um, John has there the special collections has this amazing political pamphlet collection too, and so we were also really inspired by some of the things there. But they actually a lot of those ended up getting pared down mm-hmm. as we honed in on the sections, I guess, that and themes that we really wanted to focus in on. The themes you cover are marginalized voices, Mizzou student activism, civil rights, political tensions, colonialism, LGBTQ plus issues, climate and environmental concerns. That's really a huge amount of ground to cover in one exhibit. I mean, were there other themes that you just ended up saying, we just don't have space for this? Definitely, yes. The show... Or the idea for the show kind of started out using the words like hero and essential. And a lot of the things we were looking at were stuff from special collections, but then also Nicole had just acquired some really interesting objects that were like 3D printed COVID masks that had been done by students in the university And so we were really thinking about how important that was to talk about. And those ended up actually not fitting in. So those got pared down. And then, John, we talked about this a little before, the the Heroes and Leaders exhibit that you all have online. That was sort of our, our touchstone for getting this started through you all too, right? Yes, yeah. Two of my colleagues, Courtney Gilley and John Henry Adams, put together an online exhibit of items that already existed in our collections, not recent acquisitions, but from perspectives that are often overlooked or underrepresented within special collections. And so they put together an exhibit that originally that was that was our thought because we were on sort of a time crunch with the the gallery schedule changing. We were looking at using sort of using the objects and then the text from these and sort of making a physical iteration of that online exhibit as part of the core of the of the of our idea and in the end six items from that exhibit are represented in the in the exhibition but it it really sort of then grew from that seed and 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 again from Nicole's new acquisitions and and we started looking at all of these various perspectives that we have within the collections, which I think is why the it it is such a wide breadth of themes within it, but really all grounded in frequently marginalized voices that that um, we are working to better represent and and steward within our collections. Catherine, you had mentioned in a short online video that you posted, you said that the touchstone that runs through the collection is the Mizzou yearbook, Savitar. John, is Savitar part of the university's special collections? Is that part of your contribution to the show? Yes, yeah. And the particular copies are from special collections, but we actually have three or four copies of of each year across the university. University Archives holds them, the public collections within the library that the main collections they have one and and so they're duplicates triplicates quadruplicates of these sort of across campus but these particular ones are from our collection 
Talk to me about the choices you made about which Savitar stories you chose to highlight in this exhibit, John. Some of them were from previous research that I'd done. There's one that is, I think, really striking. It's it's for young women in a black sorority who are posing with the Confederate rock and they've covered the the plaque on it with a black cloth. And and so that's from the early 70s. And that was from a, a small exhibit we had done a little over a year ago about conf- about the history of Confederate rock on campus and its removal in, in the early 1970s. So there were some that I already had some ideas about. Nicole Johnston, our co-curator, she also just loves digging into the online Savitar through the Missouri Digital Library. And so she had found a few items that I wasn't aware of, and we started pulling these out. And then it also became sort of looking very intentionally around incidents that echoed with today. So for instance, we have the 1992 Savitar represented, and that was very much because in the same way that we are seeing so many movements for um, Black Lives Matter in response to the death of the killing of George Floyd and many others, starting to look at like around Rodney King and and with the beating of Rodney King and then the the trial around that in 1992. So beginning to figure out because because we're noticing these patterns of when these movements or how they echo and when they're when they're occurring, starting to look back historically at similar events and seeing are these similar movements occurring and, and each time they were. Catherine, you're coming at this show as the director of the Bingham Art Gallery, but also as someone who has been very involved with civil rights activism, especially this year. So when you look through the collection, how does the arc of civil rights art change through the eras represented in this show? Well, we do have some interesting flyers from the 90s that I was looking at kind of the, the way that graphic design has changed through some of the years, but it's remarkably similar. Um, If we see some of the photos from the 1974 rally against racism on campus and the types of signs and banners that are being carried by the students then, we actually have a wall of of some of those photos there. And that wall is in conversation with some of the present day objects from the textile collection Nicole and Jean from the Historic Textile and Costume Collection have a timely response kind of um, guideline built in to where they are trying to collect things as they happen, especially in relation to campus. And so we've got a T-shirt and a American flag that have been altered and used for protest on campus at the end of May of this year. And we also have a homemade t-shirt that another student had made and began distributing kind of starting in June, I guess, as part of the People's Defense Group and the protests and marches that were happening here in town. So there's actually a lot of similarities between the graphic and really DIY kind of responses to these issues throughout the years. What era does the show cover? I was thinking because of Savitar's long history that maybe it went back to the early 20th century, but is it more the latter half of the 20th century up to now? It is more the latter half. I think the earliest one we have is either 68 or 69. And then I think there's one from 
maybe the more recent one is 1999 or 2002. And Catherine, you're organizing a number of Facebook live events with the curators. Do you have any details about those yet that you can share? I'm hoping that next week, I'm I'm hoping that like John and I can have a couple of moments together where we're talking about specific objects in depth. And Nicole and I will take some moments together to talk about a few things in depth too. Um, I'm thinking more like short kind of events peppered throughout the month to give people different opportunities to see them. But I don't have any specific things scheduled yet. John, before we close from your perspective, how do you want the show to influence people? My hope with the show is that some of the resonance of how similar these movements have been over in the documentation of this exhibit in the last 50 years, that there's a sense of this isn't anything new, that that what we're doing now and what, what the student and city movements that are going on, that those are all part of this greater trajectory that's been that's been happening and and just the persistence of these voices and of these movements over time to take courage from that uh and and to to also look look back at the past as far as how we've how we've navigated some of these spaces and systems and finding finding some shared values in that Catherine, any last thoughts before we close I am really grateful that Nicole and John took this on with me um, because I thought that it was going to be this sort of really easy exhibition and it turned into this extremely rich, rich moment for us. And I'm really excited and grateful. And I'm also really grateful for the folks from the archives because I think that accessing those documents from them and then getting the sabotars really rounded things out for us and helped us cement, like John said, the, the persistence of these stories and the kind of spiraling and circling of these issues that continue to, to crop up throughout time. Well, Collective Voices, Persistent Narratives Within Campus Collections is on display at the University of Missouri's George Caleb Bingham Gallery through November the 19th. The gallery is open from 8am till 5pm, Monday to Friday. There is no entrance fee and, most importantly, do wear a mask. Catherine Armbrust and John Fifield-Perez, thank you so much for taking time to chat this morning. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much, Diana. We appreciate it. It is a strange time to be in the business of showing films when there are almost no films being made. Not that we are short of films. I mean, we have almost 100 years of cinema to choose from and escaping into the world of film or the pages of a book are my two favourite places to be right now. But admittedly, only when I can do those things on my sofa. However, if you are running a cinema, then the aim is to winkle us off our sofas, ensure we don our masks and persuade us to sit in a disinfected, amply spaced auditorium for a collective experience. And here to tell us how that is going at Ragtag Cinema is its principal programmer, Ted Rogers. Hello, Ted. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of behind the scenes things that those of us, which is most of us, are not involved with cinematic programming have no idea about. I'm guessing it isn't as simple as just you looking at a list of films and checking a few boxes. How how does it work? Well, Principally, um, I would say a quarter of my job is is sort of what you imagine it to be. I get to uh, watch 
an enormous amount of films. I get to craft series. I get to be a, a very artistically minded curator and think of discussions and and people to have those discussions with. And I get to highlight lost gems and, and really bask in that glory of being an artist. But three quarters of my job is really on the business side. It's a lot of negotiations. It's a lot of dealing with copyright law. It's dealing with who owns the rights, what is in circulation, where we stand in the rest of the country and the rest of the landscape. It's the boring part. And it's also a lot of bookkeeping. But of course, right now, things have changed quite a bit. So with a sort of lack of new uh, material coming out into the market, a lot of my job has actually become a lot more artistic as I've had to do a lot more creative mm -hmm. programming. I've had to delve deep into the back catalogs of all of our distributors. And that's allowed us to really explore a great deal of cinema history, as you say. Um, but I think one of the big things about being a programmer is knowing the audience. And while your your local Megaplex has a general sense of, of a national audience or an international audience, Ragtag, our, our job is really to know exactly who's coming to our theater, what exactly they want to see, and what I can figure out that they want to see that they don't know about. So presumably sometimes there are films that come out that you think, well, this isn't something that I want to show at, at Ragtag. And other times are there films that come out that you would really love to show, but for whatever reason, you're not allowed to show it? You don't have access to it? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, on a straight down the middle uh, theatrical level, there are tiers, let's say, of films. Certainly films that would fit the bill that would make a ragtag crowd classically thrilled to come see uh, that we simply cannot show. We're not at the right, I guess, level of uh, possible ticket sales. We don't have enough screens. We can't give it enough time. There's all of these sort of considerations. But I think what's more interesting is uh, what comes out of the festivals. And it's why we certainly can't just turn around and show everything that we showed at True False, even if we wanted to. It's why films that come and premiere at Sundance don't end up coming to the theater until a year or two years or five years later or never. It's because most of the festivals end up being these bidding wars for distributors to end up owning these films and then essentially leasing them to us as the uh, as the exhibitor. So if a film hasn't been bought yet, if a film is been bought and then shelved, yeah, I mean, we never, ever get to show them. <laughs> which uh, is also why we can end up showing a film for the very first time that is 60 years old. There is some magic left in the world, I suppose. Yeah, naively, you think from the outside, well, why can't you just ring somebody up and have the film come here? But I guess it, does, it doesn't quite work like that. Well, sometimes it does. Sometimes we can certainly flex that sort of friendly model or that friendly, uh, that friendly muscle. But um, a lot of the times it is it my job does certainly hit a lot of brick walls and i think it's about creatively uh as aaron lieberman one of the uh the executive directors for the organization has put it i have to pirouette and <laughs> creatively pivot so in these pandemic times when reality often feels like too much to deal with on a relentless daily basis are you curating ragtags programming differently to soothe us during these times? I would say it's a fine balance between soothing and shocking. I think uh, what I've found, um, because one of the issues is our audience has changed and who comes into the cinema now is not necessarily who came into the cinema before the pandemic. And really our, you know, the first 
three months that we were open was about essentially figuring out who that audience is and then catering to them. And so I think our uh, On the Rocks, which will, is still running, the new Sofia Coppola is, I mean, it's absolute comfort food. It's Bill Murray telling you that it'll be okay. I mean, it's it's a wonderful <laughs> film. And that's done quite well for us. But the other side of the coin is that horror and exploitation and I guess what would sort of be considered the weirder end of the spectrum has done quite well too. And that is something that we've always done, but never done in the regularity that we've been doing since the pandemic has begun. So soothing and shocking for sure. <laughs> so as part of your programming job, you get to put together series of films. I'm guessing you have, do you have notebooks full of film quartets and septets that you're just waiting for the right moment? I mean, how do you put a series together? What's the impetus for a series? Well, I think truly where to begin is with limitations. It's what can I do? How much time do I have? How many films can I actually run? And so to trim down to four films certainly guides a curatorial kind of concept. But Sometimes it's just ideas strike from discovering one film and realizing what could run together well with it. And I think the the films should certainly sell themselves, but the series should also sell the films sight unseen. And so the series that I have coming up in uh, throughout November and into the beginning of December is Women Over the Influence, which is a play on the Cassavetes' uh, Woman Under the Influence. But generally, it's strong female leads in late night oddities, and that's sort of the copy for it. But this particular series is specifically about exploitation films, grindhouse, cult, genre films, which are not necessarily, I don't think, scream as feminist films. But there is certainly a history in horror and in a lot of these low-budget spaces with female directors, with female stars, and with fairly feminist storylines. And so it's exciting to be able to spotlight something that isn't quite so obvious. And it's also a wonderful opportunity to run some films that are incredibly silly <laughs> or very experimental or very off-putting or deeply disturbing or just absolutely a blast to watch. You know, this is definitely not our, our normal programming, but as far as an opportunity to see something very strange late at night, it is a, a wonderful door into a world that we don't often get to spotlight. So they run on Saturday evening, starting on November the 14th for their following three weekends after that. What film was the impetus? Where did you start with this series? You have four films, one called Miss 45, one called Sister Street Fighter, Emma May, and the last one is called Freeway, of course, none of which I have ever heard of. So where did you start with this series? So I began with Miss 45, which is Abel Ferrara is sort of a perennial low budget, zero budget, New York, no wave filmmaker started in the 80s. I believe his first film was The Driller Killer. <laughs> but he was friends with Debbie Harry and all sorts of New York no wave people. And most recently, he made a film that was pseudo autobiographical with Willem Dafoe called Tommaso. We ran it virtually while we were still locked down. But he's just a phenomenally transgressive filmmaker. Uh, but Miss 45 is, of course, a film where a woman is sexually assaulted. She ends up killing her assailant and then in very short order begins to basically turn the gun on every single man in sight in New York City. And one of the wonderful aspects of the film is that the only spoken dialogue is catcalling. 
or uh, whimpers, I suppose, as as they're being killed. But it is definitely a kill all men film, and it is over the top, and it is shocking. But I had seen it in New York City when I still lived there, and there were cheers coming from the audience throughout, and that's a real feeling. Mainly female audience, presumably. Uh, yeah, mostly. <laughs> And then I just went on this drag trying to find films that would fit that. And I wanted to work with a distributor, with a single distributor for this. And so we worked with the American Genre Film Archive that devotes their time completely to preserving these B-rated exploitation films that are otherwise fairly neglected. But they have an incredible catalog. They're wonderful to work with and in many ways helped me by suggesting more and more and more films through the catalog or you know, offering to create a trailer for an individual film, bringing on new digitized aspects for us. So it's, it's it was a wonderful uh, process to work with them. But Freeway, I think, being the last film in the series, which is the bookend there, is a sort of unbelievable film with Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer Sutherland, which is um, often forgotten, and maybe that's for a good reason, but it is essentially a Red Riding Hood story, and it is... Um, wildly offensive, but it should inspire <laughs> cheers. And then also, sorry, I mean, I, I I love to talk about it, but Emma May as well is a film by uh, Jama Baraka, who worked in the LA Rebellion, which is a term for the UCLA black filmmakers who started making films in the late 60s that really saw the first wave of black feature filmmakers in America. And MMA is in some ways a proto-black exploitation film. It features... Uh, Again, a strong female lead, which can certainly be reminiscent of Foxy Brown or Cleopatra Jones or any of these sort of characters. But she is a just a very mild-mannered young woman who happens to be from the country and happens to know how to throw a punch. And then similarly, Sister Street Fighter is a female-led kung fu film, and it's a blast. I mean, but it's it's about subverting expectations, and it's about having the opportunity to to explore some wacky ideas. Well, they, like you say, they may not be for everybody. And there is no way to see them other than to come to RAGT. These are not things that you are going to be streaming, presumably. Oh, absolutely not. No, these are... um, (laughs) I I also take great pride in the fact that these films are available all of probably nowhere else. Okay. (laughs) So if you want to see them, we need to get off our sofas, put our mask on and come down on a Saturday night late for November the 14th, every Saturday through December the 5th, I think it is. Well, Ted, thank you so much for the updates. Let's stay in touch. And next time you have a fun series coming out, come and tell us all about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and have fun. Thanks, Ted. In the before times, there was one mid-Missouri theatre that no matter the challenges faced by the performing arts world, always seemed to be riding their own wave of success, the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock. But COVID pays no heed to individual waves and it has instead turned the entire sea of the performing arts into a mill pond on the stillest of days. And because of that, it has been a long time since I last checked in with the Lyceum Theatre's artistic director, Quinn Gresham. So today is the day for a catch up. Welcome back to the show, Quinn. I am so happy to be here. And I have to say, uh, you you just strung those horrific words together in such an eloquent way that it almost even sounded good. (laughs) 
So when I think of the Lyceum Theatre during these bereft times, I have this image of you giving a daily recital to a few rows of stuffed teddy bears and some raggedy <laughs> andals and whatever cardboard cutouts you found at the back of the storeroom. So I'm wondering when you walk across the Lyceum stage, what songs or comedy snippets do you kind of hear in your head? What resounds to you? It's very interesting because I think every staff member has at some point or other during this strange period happened through the auditorium. Uh, not everyone enters and exits through the through the actual theater, but uh, occasionally there's an errand that sends you uh, that way. Most of us have been working from home pretty consistently since uh, since March, although we all have individual time in the in our offices, and almost. To a person, every single one of them, including myself, has said something to the effect of, it's just heartbreaking to open the door into the auditorium uh, and see it still and, and, and quiet when it should be bursting with life and uh, that, that 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 has been a real a real challenge to have that large empty unused space uh, just reminding us of how not used it currently is this has been a mourning process uh, for all of us in the arts in some form or fashion and uh Initially, it was it was too painful to even think about the good times. Now I'm having occasional memories of oh the women's restroom line and you know things like that that are charming, uh, come coming back to me. Uh, and we had put together an entire season. We had all of the personnel, we had all of the uh, the casting, and uh, there there were lots of really interesting new people that we were looking forward to uh, introducing to Mid-Missouri. And the deal is that we uh, we basically said to any actor, technician, designer, director, if we offered you a position in 2020, uh, we are postponing everything until next year at almost the exact same time, and you have first right of refusal. So my hope is that all of those terrific people will be able to rejoin us next year. Knockwood, fingers crossed, all of that stuff. But now, you as the Lyceum Theatre, you have an incredibly dedicated bunch of donors and season ticket holders. But even with that kind of support, I imagine that like most other theatres around the world, you are realistically having to look to 2022 or even 2023 to see any kind of normal return. I mean, how financially resilient is the Lyceum Theatre to a prolonged downturn? Yeah, it, it it is something that we can't sustain for many years. I don't know that anyone can. Uh, I mean, you can't run a shoe factory in a world where no one buys shoes for two years. It doesn't work. I mean, you you have to either be nimble enough to figure out a new way to reach an audience or uh, just throw in the towel. I don't really see throwing in the towel as being something that the Lyceum is going to face. Uh, we are we're fortunately. Uh, we complain about this all the time, but uh, in this moment, it's nice to have a fairly lean administrative team. So we have been able to keep everyone employed through this whole period, thanks to a variety of different ways that we've found support. But you're touching on the thing that we think about, well, gosh, 24-7, is in the absence of ticket sales, uh, what do we do? Because bills do continue to come in and we have costs outside of just administrative salaries. We've been very fortunate that 
a good portion of our ticket holders understood the situation that we were in and just turned their ticket sales for 2020 into a donation to the theater. Uh, that was hugely, hugely helpful. And many others were able to just, they weren't able to do that necessarily, but they could move their tickets to next year without requesting a refund. All of those things were tremendously helpful. And the only reason that we've been able to retain the staff is because of that level of generosity. Uh, now we're reaching into uh, what would normally be our annual uh, backers campaign for our annual gifts. And, and that's an unusual thing too, because typically we meet everyone at the theater. <laughs> we're on stage. Age. We're, we're making the appeal in front of a beautifully designed set right before a terrific show that our audience uh, is about to see. And it's very easy to connect the support with the work. That's really hard right now, but we are doing everything I, uh, that we can. Uh, pretty much the entire team is devoted to, to making sure that we've got the funds to keep going, but also the funds to reopen. We can't just spend every penny that we have. We would be in a lot of trouble when it came time to reopen if we did that. Uh, so... You know, when I went into uh, the, when I decided to study theater, I did so with the understanding that math was never going to be a part of my life. (laughs) Or pandemics, in fact. uh, Right, or that. (laughs) Yeah, epidemiology was not going to be something that I had to really think about. So this has been interesting. It's been sad. It's been scary. It has been eye-opening. And it's been educational. All of those things. And, you know, we, we all talk about returning to normal I don't think we're ever going to be going back. We're going to be going forward into something totally new. And all of the strange tools we're picking up along the way, who knows how they will be used in the new world as we discover it. You know, we've been maybe not as active as some other theaters in terms of virtual programming. We've had a magic show that happened, oh gosh, a few weeks ago. Coming up, we have a, we partnered with a theater in New York to present Cruise in a Box, which is a uh, an international cruise that happens in your living room with actors <laughs> and entertainment. And it is called Cruise in a Box, not just because it's in your computer, but because a box of goodies relating to your travels arrives at your door after you purchase a ticket. It's a really interesting and different way of connecting with our audience. And all day today... It's funny. Back in 2013, around this time, around Halloween, I was working on our adaptation of A Christmas Carol. That's when the hard work for the original production began. And here I am. It's almost Halloween of whatever year this is, 2020. And we are hard at work on a virtual version of A Christmas Carol, which will take place in December with a bunch of Lyceum favorites and uh, a lot of fun, not Zoom-related technology that's going to hopefully deliver the story in a really exciting way. You have these special events coming up, the cruise in the box being, being one of them. Tell me a little bit about this season of special events, because it seems like it's probably a nationwide option that many theatres have access to. How does that work? Well, all everybody has been trying to figure out what can we offer. And I've participated in a variety of national theatre conferences during this time, and all of the discussion has been, what can we do? And the in the box concept uh, was born out of the Adirondack Theater Festival in Glen Falls, New York, but has since gone on to partner with a, a bunch of other theaters around the country that are participating in it. There are lots of different things like that happening in almost every theater throughout the United States, because that's what we can do, particularly uh, those of us that are union theater 
Actors. The Lyceum is affiliated with Actors' Equity Association, which is the labor union for not only actors, but stage managers in the United States. We're also affiliated with SDC, which is the Directors and Choreographers Union. And because of that, we are bound to operate within the uh, health and safety rules and regulations that they have defined. And up to this point, I don't believe that there have been 10 productions that have been approved by equity. Uh, And most of the ones that have been approved have been either outdoors or they've been one-person shows with an audience of less than 30%. As long as those rules apply, our approach isn't possible at the theater. So we will continue to <laughs> to look at all of these things uh, and uh, look for other options if our normal concept of a Lyceum season uh, remains difficult. Talking about the Actors' Equity Association, there is something of a spat going on at the moment between equity and the Screen Actors Guild, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, which seems to boil down to rights for streaming productions. Can you just explain Give me an overview of what that's all about. I will do my best. And actually, everything that I've (laughs) talked about kind of leads up to this. Uh, Actors' Equity has always, up until moments ago, their work was to represent actors that were going to be on stage, not on screens. As technology has developed, theaters have uh, wanted to make use of streaming, maybe not streaming a full production, but having, you know, portions of the show that they can capture in a digital way to entice an audience. And Actors' Equity has struggled, I think is fair to say, to keep up with uh, the digital demand. In comes the Screen Actors Guild. Their work is all about cameras. It's all about screens. (laughs) And they have experience with this. And so essentially what happened is that there were some theaters that were not getting anywhere with Actors' Equity. They wanted to have a production with no audience, but uh, a, a safe production with healthy, regularly tested actors that they could capture and then sell that capture, that digital version to audience members uh, to watch at home. There were struggles, to my understanding, uh, getting Equity to sign off on that. SAG was willing to sign off on that. And Actors' Equity's argument against that is that the rates that normally would apply for a theater actor don't apply on a SAG contract. It's a different pay rate. And also, an Actors' Equity member uses work weeks to qualify for health insurance for the year. And working on a SAG contract, the Actors' Equity member is maybe making less money and not collecting health weeks. And that could be detrimental to the health and wellness of a member. So that, that that's pretty much what the argument is. And I'm hopeful that everybody will understand that our goals remain the same and that we work better together than apart. And uh, all of that union solidarity that is talked about will actually be demonstrated. How's that for a very careful answer? I'm, I, I'm, I'm very proud of our connection with Actors' Equity. I'm a member of Actors' Equity. I have been for actually 20 years this year. And uh, I'm so grateful for the work that they do to make uh, good, uh, sustainable work possible for actors. But I'm also hoping that we can all come to the table and fix this little spat. What's the reality on the ground for actors? Well, I think the I think the reality on the ground is difficult and painful absent the conflict between the unions. The truth is that there isn't work. I don't think there is 
10% of the work that would have been happening this time last year. There's, it's less than that. I mean, there's nothing happening. And so for an actor who relies on show business uh, to pay the bills, they're in trouble. Uh, many of them have already seen their unemployment benefits run out. And you, you think about, you know, we, we, we mainly talk about actors because they're the most visible members of our workforce. But there are also so many other people. There are carpenters. There are electricians. There are directors, designers, all kinds of people. There are concessionaires. There are people that run the bed and breakfast down the street from the theater. People that run the restaurant next door to the theater. There's so much impact here. And I think one of these days, uh, our Political friends in Washington will understand that the arts do, in fact, have a significant economic impact. But an actor today, without any theater work or and not a great deal of TV film work, would normally rely on a, a survival job, a waitering gig, office help, office work, nannying. There are so many different things that people do to make money, and most of those jobs aren't available either. So a lot of my friends uh, that are in New York City aren't currently. Many of them have left because they can't afford to pay the exorbitant rent rates without any revenue coming in. So many friends who are too old to be doing this are living in their parents' basements. I always wonder why anybody wants to talk to me about anything right now, because it's fairly gloomy right this second, though we have all the potential in the world ahead of us, and people want to talk about plans, and to that question, I generally have to say, well, I'm not really sure. So I'm a terrible, terrible interview. But the thing is, it's important to remind people that all of the arts are still out there. And as you say on your website, the only way they'll be tomorrow is with our help today. I think it's important to talk to people like you because you remind us why we love the Lyceum, why we love theatre, how important the performing arts are, how important the arts are. There isn't a gallery, theatre, orchestra, you name it, that doesn't need your help right now if you are able to give it. Uh, so if, if, if these things have been impactful on your lives, on the lives of your children, your grandchildren, do what you can. And I'm not just pitching the Lyceum here. I'm pitching anybody, anybody that is able to support anyone in the arts is a real right now. You're right. Well, Quinn, it is always a delight talking with you, though I wish the times weren't quite so hard and the future so uncertain. If you would like to find out more and virtually attend one of the Lyceum's special events, check out their website at lyceumtheatre.org. And if you feel so moved, you can also make a donation there. Quinn, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. that is it for another week there are so many arts organizations that i would be absolutely heartbroken to find had been forced to close during this time and i think we all do what we can because we know the arts gives us our humanity Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Ayako Suruta, Catherine Armbrust, John Fifield Perez. Ted Rogers and Quinn Gresham. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart starts and ends the show. 
You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. And until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.